Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African Studies podcast. I'm your host today, Susan Thompson of Colgate University. My guest is Catherine Bestman, Francis F. Bartlett, and Ruth K. Bartlett, Professor of Anthropology at Colby College in Waterville, Maine. She's written a fascinating book called Making Refuge, Somali Bantu Refugees and Lewiston, Maine, published in 2016 by Duke University Press in its Global Insecurity series. I found it to be an important book to understand the process of remaking one way, one's way of life after war in a new place and in a new culture. Bestman writes about her ethnographic encounter in the 1980s with Somalis from the village of Banta, who she then later re-encounters in 2006 in the town of Lewiston, the so-called quote-unquote armpit of Maine. The result is an intimate account of the trajectory of Somali Bantus from their home in the Juba Valley their experience of flight to refugee camps in neighboring Kenya, and their eventual relocation to cities and towns in the United States. Readers learn that assimilation is not just a one-way affair, as Bestman narrates how the arrival of Somali Bantus in Lewiston impacts residents there, government and neighbors alike. As such, making refuge reminds us that resettlement is more than about the arrival of refugees. It is also a process by which receiving communities adapt to their foreign neighbors in other words, a study of mutual transformation. Catherine, welcome, and thanks for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. That was a wonderful summary. Oh, great. I was thinking, wow, wow, that's right, that's right. <laughs> oh, good, okay. I mean, it's so interesting when someone reads your book because you never know what they're going to take away from it. So I read your <laughs> book right, with yeah. um, great excitement. I've shared it with my undergraduate students here at Colgate. They've also benefited from it. And the first question, I just wanted to get a bit of a bio. Who are you and where do you come from? And how did you come to study Somalis in Somalia in the 1980s? <laughs> well, so I'm a cultural anthropologist. Uh, as you already said, I teach at Colby, where I've been since 1994. And uh, I trained at the University of Arizona with an initial, I had done some preliminary field work in Portugal mm. and had anticipated doing um, my dissertation field work in a Portuguese-speaking country. And then I had this uh, opportunity offered to me by one of my faculty members on a project uh, run through the Land Tenure Center at the University of Wisconsin mm-hmm. in Somalia. And so Somalia was not a place I knew anything about. I had uh, really not been intending to go to Somalia, but I went to the library and I checked out the books that were available and I you know, read them and I thought, well, this sounds like the most fascinating place on earth. So I decided to sign on and um, the project was a very kind of practical project in that the study was to investigate the effects of a land reform law that the Somali government had been emplacing under the guidance of uh, international development agencies, mostly development agencies from the U.S., mm-hmm. um, the World Bank, and, and Europe. And so they were interested in, you know, how was the law working? And so I thought, well, that's I can do that. I'm trained as an environmental anthropologist. I know how to do that. Mm-hmm. So I studied the Somali language for a year, and then I went off. And when I got there, this was 1987, 
Um, it turned out that this a was a very very interesting question, but that it was enmeshed within these this broader terrain of um, incipient political collapse, and part of which was animated through uh, um, struggles over control of resources, control of territory, and part of which was um, predicated on struggles over control of the state, which was a foreign aid dependent government. And so as the government was falling apart, we left Somalia and then, you know, complete collapse came after the U.S. decided to withdraw foreign aid for the government um, in the face of the then dictator's human rights abuses against his own population. And the government collapsed in 1991. Um, now, remember, this was prior to the advent of email or any sort of right. electronic communication. It was really difficult to get information from the extremely remote rural part of the country where I had lived. I literally had no idea what was happening there. And that's how I ended up there. That's how I ended up um, kind of yoking the rest of my professional career to the story of Somali, of Somalia and, um, and the Somalis uh, whose life I, lives I'd become involved in while I was living there. Well, I think what's so fascinating about it um, for me, so I was actually living in Nairobi in 1994 um, as a young UN staff member, and you couldn't get housing to save your life for something affordable for a young 20-something like me, because mm-hmm. there were so many, and Kenyans were so vicious against Somalis. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking, well, and that's one thing I really appreciated about your book is how human it is. So the the struggles are ones we all experience. And of course, one of the subtexts that I think is really important is that refugees are a feature of modern life. They're not um, temporary. They're here to stay. And we have to find empathetic and humane ways to deal with them. And, you know, that leads me to my first question. When you rediscovered them in, in Lewiston, Maine, some, you know, 15, 20 years later, you had this absolute sense of awe in your writing. Can you say more about that moment of like recognition that eventually led to the project of the book, Making Refuge? Sure. So when um, the, the refugee resettlement program began accepting Somali refugees um, for resettlement in the United States in the 1990s, um, I did a lot of work with different resettlement agencies around the country, um, you know, just as an advisor and as a consultant. And gave a keynote address at the Catholic Charities Conference um, one year and you know, spent part of those years trying to find people who from the Juba Valley, people I may have known, um, without any success. And so by, by 2006, I had, um, I had decided that uh, it was time to kind of redirect my attention. I was coming out of spending a number of years back and forth doing fieldwork in South Africa, and, and there my search had been, what does a country coming out of war look like? Right. Um, I, I need to try to understand the other side of this process as well after being so immersed in trying to understand what does a country dissolving into civil war you know, look like? How do we understand that? How do you pick up the pieces then, as South Africa was attempting to do post-1994? So I was finishing a book about that when I got invited to uh, a panel at Bates College, which is in Lewiston, Maine, about an hour from where I was living in Waterville, that included, it was a panel of of brand new arrivals to the city Mm -hmm. who were Somali Bantus, which is the name that had emerged for people from the part of the country where I had done my field work. And, you know, I was really torn. I was like, oh, you know, I really need to finish my book. I can't give up a whole day to drive down there, but there are Somali Bantus coming to Lewiston. That's amazing. Of course, I have to go. Um, so I, I went, and it, you know, as the book describes, it turned out that the men who were my co-panelists 
all came from this tiny little village in southern Somalia where I had lived in 1987 and 1988. And they had been boys then, and they were now the elders, the leaders of the community. This was 20 years later. Right. And so it was an astonishing moment. Um, and they were less astonished than I was. You know, their their attitude was, we, we knew you lived in this country. We knew we'd find you. They didn't know I was in Maine, but they knew I was, you know, they just sort of expected that our paths would cross, where I had long given up hope that um, that my path would ever cross again with anybody I knew from that tiny little village of 500 people. Right. And so they were, you know, they the phone, they started calling the next day saying, all right, let's get to work. You know, you wrote one book about us. We've seen it. It's a little outdated now. Um, it's time to, you know, carry on yeah. what happened to us after 1988. <laughs> and so they were the drivers of the process of um, of telling this, you know, the, the, the second iteration of or the second phase of, of the story from the time that I became involved with them. I think that's one thing I um, particularly appreciated about your book. For those who haven't read it yet, it's divided into three parts. Um, you know, each um, each part represents your experience with the refugee communities and those that you knew from the 80s, but also each phase of their experience and finally settling in Lewiston, Maine. Part one, I think, is just an amazing teaching tool in that it traces the colonial history, uh, the history of war and violence, and, of course, dislocation in Somalia. And that, of course, is the moment when you lost touch with your friends, much to your surprise to find them 20 years later. And then each section of the book unpacks this sort of parallel narrative. And to me, that's um, one of the most interesting parts of your book for us. So I'm not trained as an anthropologist, but I use ethnographic methods. What is the role, if any, of friendship or community or longstanding relations? I'm not even sure the question I want to ask of building community with a, with a community of people in such a different setting and then re-encountering them you know, in 2006, how does that shape you as not only a person, but as an anthropologist? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And it's one that anthropologists, quite frankly, have not been very adept at addressing. So sometimes we write ethnographies that are about personal relationships that we have um, forged with people uh, with whom we, we're also doing research. Um, often we kind of, we kind of bury that part of the story, the fact that we're human beings engaging with human beings who we come to love or despise to, um, you know, want to support or want to avoid, you know, these are all the normal human sentiments that, um, characterize involvement in any community. Sure. And so anthropologists are, are somewhat awkward about how do we acknowledge that, you know, the, the, the human emotional dimension of, of fieldwork. So for me, I guess um, you know part of what part of what I, I think may come through in the book somewhat is the emotions that I felt upon our reencounter and feeling this this overwhelming sense of um, obligation and responsibility. And by that I mean um, that that I I understood their background. I knew their parents and their grandparents, that refugees are often presumed to be people who have no history, people who just sort of arrive out of nowhere. And they aren't often presented in, you know, to their new host communities or in publications about them as people who have whole rich, full lives, who, mm-hmm. who have, you know, come from a place and come from a people and, you know, had land and had houses and had extended, extended family members. And so 
once that dawned on me that that's not how they were seen locally, um, I realized that that was one one piece I could contribute was was helping to helping the Lewiston community come to understand their new community members as as people with you know a, a rich history, rich language, rich culture, um, and so that that was very important to me. I also think from the point of the community themselves, the, the Somali community, my understanding and awareness, I had all, you know, I had a lot of their parents on tape telling, telling their stories. I had, you know, their, their musicians on tape who could sit and listen to these stories. Um, knowing that I shared this knowledge of their background and their history and their home communities um, made me somebody they felt quite comfortable engaging with and talking with and, and trusting. And I think that's that's a very difficult position to come to occupy. And that, you know, that was a, an important relationship of trust. Uh, so there was a lot of emotion. Um, I, I felt there was no equivocation about to whom my responsibilities as an ethnographer lay. It was right. very clearly to the refugee community, um, first and foremost, and prioritizing their interests understanding their desires. Um, that was the, the most important component of, of the fieldwork for me. And I think I'm pretty clear about that in the book. I don't try to be kind of unbiased or anything. I'm pretty clear about um, what I think should be happening and why. I think that's a strength of the book from my perspective, because what really jumps off the page for me as your reader anyway is just the genuine affection that you have for them and that they have for you and your family and it really got me thinking about the importance of slow scholarship. So we both know that the Academy really pushes us to publish far faster than we actually can reasonably do so. And the rootedness of the relationships that evolve and morph and change over time and space in this case, to me, seems to offer a really important, not corrective, but I guess like caution, I suppose, the value of ethnography and the need to, you know, to learn another language and to spend extended times in the field. I've mentored students now. They're like, I'm going to go for three months. You need to go for a year minimum. And they, they, they take yeah. a, 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 a quicker approach because they feel pressure from their mentors and the institution and so on and so on. But I think underpinning what I just said is a, a key theme in your book the communitarian values of the Somali community and the clash they have with the individualistic or like the neoliberal ideas of those in Lewiston, I think is also sort of mitigated by this affection. They, they trust you and, and you trust them in a way that I think you see very rarely because we just don't have time anymore to do this kind of ethnography. So that um, is something I really value in your work. I think Another thing, and this is my next question, the way that you situate colonial history, can you um, talk to us about how you came to know it, how you parsed it, your use of oral history, weaving oral history with archives? How do you manage that as a cultural anthropologist? Sure. I'll just respond to something that you said earlier. One of my one of my dreams, I haven't yet done it, is to teach the anthropology of slowness. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, you know, in which I require students to do a set of tasks extremely slowly, <laughs> and just trying to reinject into contemporary life a respect for and an embrace of the slow. Yeah, I think that's so mind. so so important. Yeah. So um, that's something I, I think quite quite a bit about. 
Um, so as to your second question, well, I had done uh, field work. I had I had worked in the archives. I had gone to, I spent six weeks or so in Italy um, working in the archives in Rome, the colonial archives in Rome and the colonial agricultural archives in Florence uh, because the part of the country that I had worked in had been um, prior to World War II, under the colonial control of Italians. And so there was a lot of documentation in those archives. And then I had also worked at the British Colonial Archives from Kenya that are housed at Syracuse University um, for another several weeks. And so that afforded me um, access to the colonial documents. There's also published books by colonial ethnographers who were writing about this part of the country. And so sort of triangulating those sources with the oral histories that I collected and that were being collected by a couple of other researchers um, in the same time period that I was there uh, allowed me to, to try to kind of come to a clearer understanding of what um, what uh, the, the you know pro- the early um, 20th century history had been like late 19th century early 20th his- century history had been like in that part of Somalia and I think that's not unusual for Anthropologists, I think a lot of anthropologists working in post-colonial set settings, you know, feel that it's imperative to understand uh, what what brought those places to, you know, the circumstances that they're that they're now in, including telling those sort of deeper colonial or imperial histories. I think that's one thing I um, really like about your book when I teach um, to students how to do field work that colonial encounter um, is is also mandated, I guess, through a sense of coloniality to draw on the work of Ashil Mbembe as you do in the book. And one thing that I think is really powerful in this present moment, you know, Al-Shabaab just had an attack um, a few days ago, and the imagination of Al-Shabaab is something Americans, I think, think about sort of in passing. But you have this very nice chapter on Somali-American relations. Is there anything you would change or update or want to communicate to listeners about what, what we should, what we think we know about Somali-American relations relations, and what we might actually um, do to challenge our own stereotyping or our own sense of Somalia? Sorry, the question was muddled because I got excited. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I understand you correctly, I'll, I'll provide what, an answer to what I think you're, you're, you're getting at. And if I've gone off in a different direction, then you can sure, pull me sure. back yeah, and, and reconnect me. Um, I mean, I, I think that the media portrayal of Somalia has been basically horrific. It's been incorrect throughout. And so I, I, that's something I do try to attend to in the book. Um, what is the media portrayal? You know, Somalia in the media came to stand in for every bad word in the political lexicon, you know, from failed state to um, terrorist training ground um, to, you know, the, to um, what's the word that they use? Yeah, well, of course, to pirates, to terrorists, you know, to um, corruption, you know, the most corrupt state on earth, uh, uh, the most starving state on earth, the um, embassy creep, you know, or mission creep, the idea yeah. that you, you, know, you can intervene for one thing and you end up doing all these other things. And the Black Hawk Down film, of course. Um, you know, at it, when it came out, you know, provided a particularly horrific image of Somalis. And so I think, you know, this idea of Somalia constantly being invoked as this place of 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 unimaginable, completely incomprehensible internecine violence that 
they have perpetrated and brought on themselves and that the rest of the world simply cannot understand um, does a lot of damage, obviously not just to Somalis, but um, by completely papering over um, the political situation that was left in place after the end of colonialism, what the years of the 1980s did when there were so many foreign governments involved in trying to turn Somalia into a state modeled on sort of democratic capitalist Western style um, norms. And that caused uh, an amazing amount of um, sort of fracturing tension within the country that the the leader attempted to deal with through through brutal techniques, but he was aided and abetted in doing so by having a government supported by about a billion dollars in foreign aid. Yeah, and so there's a lot of people involved in creating you know state collapse in Somalia, and so what happens when Somalia then becomes the stand-in for a disaster is everybody else's role gets elided, and so that's a really important story. I think all of the myths the missteps, um, the bad judgments, the strategy errors that uh, that the contributing countries, most most particularly the United States, made in their various interventions in Somalia and continued to do so in the intervention in 1993-94, in the intervention in 2006. Each of those was a completely bungled effort to impose uh, what the U.S wanted in Somalia that was not necessarily what Somalis wanted. So uh, I, I think the story is really one of miscalculations, inept strategies, and um, and imperialist sensibilities on the part of the United States. That's really, really important to bring back into the picture of what has caused the destruction in Somalia. I think it's important because the, the image of Somalia as a self-perpetuating disaster zone then gets you know, slapped onto the bodies of Somalis in the United States who get prefigured in the media as either already terrorists or terrorists in the making, um, doing great damage to them. And it's, uh, and resulting in things like, you know, Somalis being included in the, in the so-called Muslim travel ban, um, which is nonsensical. So I I think, and it elides any ability to understand exactly what al-Shabaab is, is trying to do. It just makes al-Shabaab into this crazy terrorist group and doesn't actually help develop any deeper understanding of what are they fighting against? Why might they be using these particular tools of fighting? And what might be a more effective strategy for dealing with them than attempting to drown them out of this, out of, you know, off the face of the earth? Yeah, I think you um, captured what I wanted to say really well. So thanks for saving me from myself. Um, <laughs> no, thank you for the question. You also, I said something really important. You know, American imperialism is something we rarely think about. America, as we know, is an imperial power, but not, you know, it's always a surprise to my students, at least, like, we're not imperial. We didn't colonize anybody. Okay, well, let's unpack that a little bit. And of course, um, what you describe begins to play out in the town of Lewiston, Maine. So perhaps we can pivot to Lewiston. What was happening? in 2006 that you'd been called uh, to Lewiston to give this talk? And how did they come to arrive in Lewiston? And how did Lewiston, broadly defined, react to these new neighbors, for lack of a better phrase? So Somalis chose Lewiston. Lewiston did not choose Somalis. So Portland was a resettlement site already for uh, Somali refugees. And 
when Portland, um, when, when ho- available housing for resettled refugees in Portland maxed out, and some families had been arriving from other locations. Once you're resettled as a refugee, you get some support in your initial site of refuge, but then you're free, just like anybody else, to move someplace else if you don't like where you were resettled. And so a lot of Somalis were resettled, you know, at disparate places all across the United States and were interested in reconnecting with family members who had been resettled in other locations. And so there was a lot of movement around the U.S. after Somalis arrived here. And so some Somalis who had been resettled in other spots uh, wanted to reunite with their family members in Portland, but available housing was full and a few families ended up in the homeless shelter. So some other families heard about this and uh, were concerned and came to Portland to try to understand what the situation was and heard about Lewiston, which is an hour up the road, up the highway from Portland. It's a deindustrializing former mill town, lots of, of three, four, five story, you know, former tenement type houses, um, lot of available, a lot of available housing stock, very low rents. Um, Lewiston had been losing its population for a decade after the mills closed. And so it was a depopulating, um, affordable town with a lot of available housing. And so they, the Somalis who had come to Maine said, well, why don't, why don't we look there? And so, uh, the city of Portland and the city of Lewiston coordinated a bit to provide some housing for some of the Somali arrivals in Lewiston. And they liked it there and they let their family members who were living in places where they were not comfortable. Uh, mostly large public housing projects in um, in very large cities mm-hmm. to consider joining them. Um, lots of available apartments. And so Somalis responded. This began in 2001. Over the course of about three months, about a thousand Somalis moved to Lewiston. And uh, the city was not prepared for it. The schools were absolutely unprepared for it. It was a great shock to many people in Lewiston that they were emerging as this desirable site for <laughs> relocating Somalis. <laughs> so um, by 2006, Somali Bantu, well, 2004, 2005, Somali Bantus, again, the, the term for ethnic minorities, which are the people I had lived with right. in southern Somalia, were beginning to be resettled in the United States as well. And they wanted to be in a community where Somali was spoken and with people they had known from the refugee camps and where there might be more opportunities and more resources available to Somali speakers. And so some of those families began moving to Lewiston as well. And so that's then why Bates College had this panel discussion in January of 2006 to introduce the newest um, arrivals and had invited me to join that panel. What is... um... Lewiston doing now, you write a bit towards in the third part of your book about some of the ethnic-based organizations and the need for translation and the need for school supports and the effects of poverty, the effects of, um, you know, racism, black racism in particular, and how the inversion of, you know, elders with youth, these various cultural factors come into play. So 2006, um, till about 2010, you paint a very vivid picture of some of the challenges, but we get a sense of some of their successes and the ways in which they've integrated to, to their satisfaction, for lack of a better phrase, and also to some sense of coexistence, I suppose, with residents of Lewiston. Is that a fair characterization today in 2020? I guess it's 2020 now. It is 2020 I now. <laughs> 
yes, I'm no longer doing Philbrick and Lewiston, and so uh, you know the the um, my my understanding of events in Lewiston really filtered through from maintaining contact with Somali friends who live there, and then other non-Somali friends who live there as well. So I'm I'm not on the ground interviewing and going to meetings and you know all the sorts of things I was doing between right. 2006 and 2010. So I'll just preface my comments by, by sure. that. But um, but you know I'll say I think Lewiston is is really as these things go an enormous success story, and you know there are there are um, indications of uh, you know ongoing sort of tensions and struggles and problems. Um, they have elected a couple uh, mayoral races in a row have resulted in a victory by a hair's breadth of people who one would like I would characterize as racist and anti-Somali. Sure. But they only won by a tiny bit, not by a lot. <laughs> and they were harshly contested elections. And so while those are, you know, kind of a negative indication, it's also not as bad as it could be. Um, but then there are also indications on the other side. There are Somalis who have been um, appointed to the school board. And in this last election, a young Somali-American woman was elected to the city council. I saw that. And so, yeah, so that's, that indicates, you know, she is the new face of Lewiston. Um, and, you know, she ran, and you know, opposed and, and uh, was out there every single day pounding the pavement, knocking on doors and ringing doorbells and introducing herself to the community. And, um, you know, not only is she the first Somali-American to be elected, but she's the youngest person ever elected to that city council, as I understand it. Mm-hmm. And so that's super exciting because it does indicate you know, things shifting politically in the city. Um, I think that the community organizations that I write about in the book are thriving. Um, one of them has pivoted towards putting, um, matching up farmers from the immigrant community with people who have land, but they don't want to farm it themselves. And um, there have now, there's now been a fluorescence of um, farming projects throughout central Maine oh, wow. um, that are managed by immigrant farmers. They have a food truck. They are marketing their food at farmer's markets all over the place, selling to restaurants. Um, they're responsible for providing food to some of the food pantries in central Maine that service primarily food insecure elderly Mainers, white people. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's, it's, that's kind of a, a transformation in the agricultural economy of the state that I think is really notable and really exciting. And uh, so those organizations continue to be robust. Um, the leadership of those organizations are widely recognized by everybody as, as city leaders as well, um, not just leaders in the immigrant community, but leaders in the city. And so I, I think in terms of community building initiatives and community visibility and collaborative work, um, it has really been a success story. I think, um, you know, the schools continue to, to work on some of the issues that I talk about in the book. Sure. And uh, there continues to be a problem with disproportionate minority um, uh, suspension and also disproportionate minority incarceration more broadly in the state of Maine. Those are issues that have to be worked on. Uh, but I think, um, you know, I think the story of Lewiston is one in which a community sort of had to take a look at itself and say who not not who were we ten years ago, but who are we becoming and how do we how do we forge the very very best sense of ourselves that we are capable of doing. And that's what a lot of people have, have pitched in to do. I, I think it's a remarkable story. 
I um, th- I we actually my family and I um go to Nova Scotia every summer, so we always stop somewhere between Portland and Bangor. So we had dinner uh-huh. with them just just this past May, and we stopped at a Somali restaurant, and it was incredible. Like it was just <laughs> great hospitality, good food. The kids loved it. My kids were both actually born in Kenya, so their very first food was Ethiopian food. So they, uh-huh. you know, they had such an affection, and it was great. Uh huh. Um, to experience it, because of course I'd read your book and knew that I wanted to talk to you, um, and just to be able to like communicate with a, a Somali person. You know, I think this was probably too young, maybe perhaps born in the United States, but the recognition that my young adult children had with these young adult uh-huh. Somalis to me seemed very profound and a little bit against what I've understood Maine to be kind of a, a you know xenophobic place and narrow-minded in the way that where I grew up in Nova Scotia is the same sort of whiteness. I don't know how to describe it any better than that, but it made me also feel hopeful uh, about the ways in which the mutual transformation, to use your conceptual language, shows us ways to think about integration, resettlement, and what it means to see the full person, not just the life lived in violence. And that's another question I Mm -hmm. have for you. Would you consider yourself an activist? You use that language in the book a little bit. And of course, as academics, we're sort of like socialized or trained to be adjudicators of knowledge rather than activists or to have a political mm-hmm. stance. How do you, you know, you, you chose that language in the first part of your book. Are you an activist? What does that mean to you? I'm not an activist. I'm a scholar and I'm a collaborator. And I suppose I'm more comfortable with the word advocate yeah. um, than activist. You know, I, I guess for me, an activist is, uh, is a person who, I mean, I, okay, so I, you know, maybe, I don't know if we're splitting hairs here, but I, you know, for me, my identity really rests on my scholarship, and I get involved in activist campaigns. I support activist organizations. Um, I contribute to activist initiatives, but but my beingness in the world and the the ways in which I approach topics and um, and engage with the people with whom I'm collaborating is, 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 is always from the point of view of scholarship and research, right. but it, it often has a very specific set of goals. And, you know, those goals may be goals of public education, public outreach, public humanities, um, or those goals may be things like, we're going to change this law. We're going to close down this, you know, this office that's, right. that's misbehaving or mishandling people. We're going to target um, these policies for change. Um, so, you know, I think those are strategic, st- sort of strategic choices that I make about what scholarship is going to be turned to. But, but they're all based in research and scholarship. And uh, for me, that's, that's really important to be able to tell a story about why X is better than Y, why Y is um, harmful and hurts communities, and why if we want to be a community in which we care for each other, um, we would do better to think towards X rather than defend Y. Yeah, I think that's so. Oh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. No, no, no. Go ahead. That's that's. I'll, I'll stop there. I um. I think your book is really accessible. Like one of its um selling features for me is that it's accessible to first year students. It's accessible to you know an established scholar like me. I shared it with my sister who is um, high school educated. She loved it. Um, cause she never thought about these issues before. And I think at the, mm-hmm. at, at its heart, the sense of, um, you know, issues of global displacement in a world that is in constant flux, uh, it's really nice to have 
longstanding, detailed, intimate, affection-based ethnographies because it shows us, you know, the value of slow scholarship to close the loop on that, but also to think about the ways in which the ongoing ramifications of decisions that were made in, you know, the 1850s and the 1930s and the 1980s play out in our everyday lives. And I, you know, I take your point. I'm off, I'm also asked, or do you consider yourself an activist? No, I consider myself someone who thinks about ideas and I hope I can argue for or against a position based on how I did it and what I found. Um, so with that sort of comment in mind, as we begin to wrap up the interview, is there any advice you would offer to young anthropologists or new anthropologists about doing the kind of work you've done given the many changes we've seen in the world in the last 40 years? Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to, just to close out the commentary on activism, I guess one of the reasons I don't call myself an activist is, you know, because I am based in the academy and because the sort of work that I do is, is really oriented towards writing and telling, telling stories, right. ethnographic stories. And I think the work of activism, it, it, it's a way of also showing respect to what it is that people who call themselves activists do and mm -hmm. acknowledging that, that their goals and their tactics and strategies and methodologies are different than mine, which is not to say one is, is better or worse. They're just different. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to flag there is that difference. So the advice that I would have for young anthropology students, I, you know, I do, I do a lot of work with, um, obviously undergrads at Colby, but also a lot of work with grad students. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of, of concern about how, how to produce work that's relevant and that has that carries some sort of that's meaningful in some way, and for me the answer is always work needs to be collaborative. Um, that's that's the power of anthropology. It's the power of ethnography. It's rooted in collaborative relationships mm -hmm. in which um, what is being recorded and what the objectives and goals are are collaboratively determined. And that's that's kind of antithetical to the history of the way we've done anthropology, where we've imagined anthropology as a sort of singular, individualistic, participant observer, um, you know, out there doing his or her work. And I just I don't think that's um, I don't think that's the, the the caricature of anthropology going forward. I think anthropology really has to be in the interests of community and reflective of community desires and community interests and community concerns. So that. That's, and I also think doing anthropology in isolation, um, I just don't see the point of that, <laughs> I guess. I think everything's better with partners, and Absolutely. it makes it be less of an ego-driven process, and it also makes it, ensures that what you produce is, is going to be produced with a more accessible um, readership in mind. Yeah, I um, like that answer, and it makes me think of um, a course I taught last semester. I taught a decolonial framework. Are you familiar with this framework? Would you classify your work as such? Your collaborative approach uh, is adjacent to decolonial frameworks as they're discussed in Southern Africa, for example, at the moment. Right. So I've come, I feel like I've come late to the party on, on decolonizing methodology. So it's something I've spent the last two years after I finished this book. Oh, wow. um, the work of this book kind of led me in that direction. And then mm -hmm. I discovered this whole robust literature um, that I, I wasn't aware of, that I had not received any training in myself, and that right. I had kind of just not, I'd I, I glanced through some of it, but I didn't understand that it was a, a whole area of knowledge. And so I've been immersing myself in it and have found it um, really exciting and been a little puzzled by um, mainstream anthropologies, that, that it is not more central to mainstream anthropology in ways that it clearly should be. So I, I do think that, you know, the language of 
anti-imperial anthropology or decolonizing anthropology is, is, has made a lot of inroads into, into the discipline of anthropology. And I think that students and grad students are, um, you know, completely embracing of this, of this turn, of this sort of anti-imperial turn, anti-racist turn. Um, I think that that's the direction in which anthropology has to, I mean, we know this from um, Ralph Triot, who told us this decades ago, that mm-hmm. um, oh, you know, along with, with Said, if anthropology is going to be anything in the world, it's got to be in the interests of anti, anti-imperial, anti-racist um, orient, orientation. So, uh, so that's been really, uh, I think, um, informative and and grounding for me in terms of why I love this discipline so much, why I think it it adds so much value to the world, and makes the life of a scholar really rich in human collaborative ways. That's a great answer. I'll ask you one more question um, just before we um, wrap it up. Um, what books, if any, would you recommend to listeners who might want to learn more about your work or some of the methodologies or theory that has, has animated your life's work? Oh, my goodness. That's a hard question. Sorry, I'm ah. sorry. <laughs> oh, I can give you a hint. You like when I read your book. Ask me. No, I know. Please tell me your social security number. No, no, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, when I read your book, I'm like, oh, wow, this would pair so well with Lika Maki's work on um, Hutu nationalism and the refugee, the Burundian um, refugees in Tanzania, for example. Um, I also thought about it vis-a-vis Lisa Wadeen's work on ambiguities of domination in Syria. So I, I thought of it it's like, how, how would you situ- like what literature would you put yourself in conversation? And let me reframe a little bit. <laughs> Well, I think, you know, the literature I've, I've found myself moving towards is, um, is is a little bit different than that. It's, it's literature that tries to um, tell global stories about the impact of, uh, of 19th century, early 20th century imperialism and white supremacy on forging the globe that we uh, live in today. And so I'm thinking about um, people like Lisa Lowe, for example, Rita Chen, um, those are some, these are not anthropologists, um, the historians Marilyn Lake, and I'm forgetting her collaborator, historians in Australia, uh, who are writing about that formative moment at the turn of the last century when the emergent world of order of nation states was being forged through imperial and colonial interventions, when language about how nation states were to engage with each other was being forged through the League of Nations mm-hmm. and when white supremacist agendas were being forged across uh, in Britain's colonies um, as well as the United States and parts of Europe, other parts of Europe as kind of the overarching racial hierarchy that was going to contain and um, and define the ways in which these nation states were to interact with each other. I think, I think those those dynamics, um, Lisa Lowe goes into also the movement of labor um, around the world through these mechanisms. I think that um, those books are really, really, really important. And then when you add to that um, the books, the books by folks like Cedric Robinson on the history of racial capitalism and mm-hmm. the philosopher Charles Mills on the history of white supremacy, um, Domenico Lusardo, who's a who's a philosopher um, on the ways in which even prior to 100 years ago, um, the ways in which liberal democracies were infused with 
um, with white supremacist understandings about you know who's whose rights were to be guarded and assured and whose whose were to be ignored. Um, th- th- this is the literature I've pivoted towards and trying to sort of understand where are we today in the face of resurgent racialized nationalisms in the United States, in Australia, in, um, in uh, so many countries in Europe, and certainly in the UK. Right. Uh, so that's the direction I've been going in. That's so interesting. Your comment makes me think of Leanne Fuji's work. She's um, a Rwanda scholar. You might find her work interesting. She took the notion of spectacle and the notion of everyday violence and did comparative studies of lynching in Jim Crow, Maryland with um, episodes of violence in Rwanda in 1994. And she links it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, it's very interesting works. I'll send it along if that's of interest to you. But I feel like we could talk for a long time, so I'm going to call it. (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks so much. Um, My guest today has been Catherine Besteman at Colby College in Waterville, Maine. She's the author of Making Refuge, Somali Bantu Refugees in Lewiston, Maine. Catherine, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Take care. You too. Bye-bye.